welcome to the latest episode of Climbing Consulting. Today, I speak to Alison Essie, co-founder and director of The Storytellers. Having begun her career in communications and later in big show production, Alison is no stranger to captivating people through the power of storytelling. But when the events industry went into freefall in the early 2000s, Alison and her co-founders decided to switch focus and move from telling stories on stage to create the storytellers and help businesses to create compelling narratives that allowed their leaders to help their teams navigate their organizations through significant periods of change. 19 years later, and the storytellers have worked with over 200 of the world's biggest brands, including HSBC, Coca-Cola, and BP, to name but a few. In this conversation, Alison and I discuss a whole range of fascinating topics around storytelling and her journey growing the storytellers, including why stories help to cut through the noise and can make dense and complex information much more digestible, how you can use the traditional hero's journey story framework to help you tell engaging stories, whether that's on a client project or within your own firm, and the origins of the storytellers, the challenges they faced on their own hero's journey, and how Alison and her fellow co-founders turned something that's often considered fluffy and intangible into a clear, concise toolkit to inspire people, shift mindsets, and build trust that even the most skeptical CEOs buy into. Wherever you are in your career, the insights and advice that Alison shares in this one will help you improve how you communicate with clients and fellow consultants alike. Whether you are leading a consultancy or running a project, I know that you're going to get a ton from what Alison has to say. So with the first chapter of today's story over, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Alison Essie. Alison, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Nice to meet you. Well, and thank you for, for welcoming us. I must say, we've had one of the best welcomes of all. I, I always notice a good welcome, and your team are definitely <laughs> top up there. Everyone has been very kind. I don't think I've ever been asked if I'm okay more in half an hour. So thank you very well, much to your team. Well, it's pleasure. We, we have worked hard on our culture, and we are a very nice bunch of people. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm keen to dig into that today. Yeah. And obviously, we've got a lot to talk about, and I'm keen to find out more about what storytelling is, the journey with storytellers. But to kick us off, for those who maybe don't know you so well, it'd be great if you could give a brief overview of who you are and, and how you got to where you are today. Well, thank you. I love talking about storytelling. So this is a great opportunity for me to have the platform. I'm Alison Essie. I'm one of the founders of The Storytellers. We've been going now oh, nearly almost 19 years. We started this business 19 years ago, around my kitchen table, <laughs> as all small businesses tend to quite often start around, you know, around someone's table or in a garage or an attic somewhere. And we were way ahead of our time. At the time, nobody was using storytelling in business the way that we use it, which is very much as a, an engagement, a leadership tool to help leaders bring their people with them on a journey of change. In those days, storytelling belong to advertising, to filmmaking, to brands, but not this kind of storytelling. So I think we were, yeah, as I said, way ahead of our time. And now it's become a mainstream tool, which we're terribly proud of. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, I think particularly, so I want to dig into that 19 year journey mm. and, and having launched a business myself, I'm always fascinated to hear those stories and find out what spurred that kitchen table conversation. But maybe just to that point, because obviously storytelling I think it's more mainstream, but I appreciate 
there's a lot of people who probably still don't know what it yeah, is and you definitely. must have this when you speak to clients yeah. and just for our listeners to help them set the scene in the context you're talking about it actually what is storytelling well, it's an enormous subject. And of course, we all know stories uh, come in different shapes and forms. We have books, we have films, we, you know, there are lots of different ways that we hear and absorb stories. For the storytellers, take on storytelling is to create a narrative that in the business context articulates the journey that a business is on. With all its highs and lows, it's got to be an honest story of our ambition for the future. So it's not really necessarily a story that just harks onto the past. It's a story about where we're going. And most importantly, the part that everybody can play. And I mean, I, I might bore you with some of the neuroscience of this. but no, please. When love, people, love the detail. When people feel that they can play a part in something, it ceases to be something that's done to them. And as human beings, we're wired to resist change. We work very hard to preserve our current culture, to preserve the status quo. And we tell stories around that to validate the decisions we make around our actions and behaviors. And we crave meaning through stories. So it seemed a bit ridiculous that in the business context, there was not really any storytelling in a kind of positive, this is where we're going. It was all delivered as a kind of like PowerPoint decks of strategy. And, you know, this is our strategy. These are our values. But there was very little sort of joining the dots and kind of linking all of these different things together as a cohesive narrative. And we thought, well, you know, if people have a narrative, they're going to be able to make sense of it all so much more easily. And that's really where we started. Is It started with a narrative, but it's since developed into an entire leadership development proposition and, you know, encouraging organizations to become story-driven organizations where everything that they do, every aspect of their business revolves around this narrative of where we're going and why we're going there. I think we're going to spend some time here because I find it, I find it fascinating. And, and just for your benefit, my my experience in consulting was more on the change side. And yeah. So I, I may have been guilty in the past of doing those PowerPoints you talk mm. about. And you know, we've all heard of comms plans and mm. you need a rollout plan and you need to mm. you know get people in rooms and show them PowerPoints. And I think particularly for listeners who maybe are on that kind of side of consulting, I, I just love to dig into what you said there around it's not it's not about that PowerPoint piece. It's the narrative and actually how those two either link or you know, do you need the PowerPoint if you have the story? Does the story live on its own? And almost what is the disadvantage of some of those, I'll call them more traditional approaches of yeah. PowerPoint? You know, everyone's heard of vision, values, mission, and telling everyone about that in their organization. I think less about a story. And I'll come on to sort of how you yeah. explain that to people, but I'd love in your words to sort of understand how they're different and why stories win out over comms plans, if you like. I, I would say there is a place for comms plans. You can't not have them and you still need your PowerPoint decks. But what's often missing is that big context setter that is delivered in a very human way, that is non-threatening, that people can make sense of it. It's not full of corporate jargon. It's in a very, very simple, clear, and most importantly, emotionally compelling, because that's the other thing. Sharing data and statistics cannot win your heart and the storytelling is a, a fantastic way of actually building belief and 
helping win hearts as well as minds. So there is, of course, a place for the rational data that, that you know, the, these are facts, these are proof points, these are important pieces of material. But what a narrative can do is, is to help people make sense of what is often a, a whole set of data that they're being bombarded with. And it's very, very difficult to make sense of it all because there's so much information delivered in a very isolated kind of way. So a story really helps create context. It's written in a very human way. The language we use is very human, conversational type language. There is a flow. There's a kind of a beginning, a middle and an end, although you never reach the end because that's your vision and that keeps changing. So it's just a, a very natural way of helping people to understand, okay, I get where we're going. I get why we're going there. And most of all, I can picture the part that I can play. So I, I'm going to take ownership of this story that I feel I've got a degree of influence as to what the outcome will be. And it's that sense of ownership, that sense of I can participate rather than be a passive bystander. All of those things help win people over. And it helps them then when they receive the PowerPoint deck that's got all of the strategic kind of documents, you know, littered all over it. It helps them understand why this matters. So that's really one of the very many reasons why we do what we do. I think to that point, it gives a clear sort of overview. And I, I don't know if there's a, a client example or a, a hypothetical you can share. Of, you know, the, the immediate question for me, not knowing so much about it, is how, how you bring that into a business context because we all know implicitly stories you know be it things from when you're a child or be it people telling stories at the pub you know friends at dinner like you say that story that metaphor it it lands and it makes you think about stuff you know it's the sort of it's why parables are what they are isn't yeah. it but actually how do you do that in a business context and i guess to your point how do you make it emotional because again sort of channeling people i know who listen you know, there is a sense that could that just be actually Yes, it's a story, but it's the dry data put into sentences as opposed to a kind of, I guess, the hearts and minds piece. How do you get something emotive out of what potentially starts as a PowerPoint and an Excel? How, how do you take people on that journey? Gosh, where do I start with this? That's a big uh, question, I know. Yeah. Well, let me start with what happens when you don't hear a story. When you okay. hear somebody give you some data or a fact, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to agree with it or you're going to disagree with it, or you might sit on the fence because you don't know any different. When you tell someone a story, seven areas of the brain light up and they are all areas of the brain that control language, imagination, color, word processing, all of the emotions, arousal, all of that kind of thing. So if you can actually deliver some of that information as a cohesive narrative that has exactly the same structure as a Hollywood movie does, then people are going to participate, and I say that in inverted commas, participate in it, just as they would if they're watching a film. You empathize with the hero. In the business context, the hero is the employee. So we are all the hero. In a, in a film, for example, there would be an inciting moment, a, an event or something terrible that happens. And the hero has to set out on the journey. So if you've ever seen the film Taken with Liam Neeson, fab film, 
And anything that makes me feel like Liam Neeson, is gonna be, you've got my attention already, Alison. Please continue. So, so if you have a film like that, you know that life is good or life is as as it is, and then something happens, and then it sets the hero out on a, on a journey to resolve that challenge, and in Liam Neeson's case, to find his daughter again or to find his family. We've created this framework, this story framework, which follows a very similar kind of structure. So we talk about our pride and our purpose in the first chapter of the story. It's six chapters. And that's where life is good. It's a very uplifting, positive chapter where we celebrate where we've come from. We celebrate what we are and why, what we stand for and our purpose and all of those wonderful things. And then chapter two is the inciting event. And in the business context, that's the big challenge we've got to overcome. Now, that might be an external challenge. It might be an internal challenge about the way that we're working or our culture or something like that. But it means that we now collectively have got to overcome this challenge. And the rest of the story, the, the remaining four chapters, describe what we're going to do about it. And it talks about our culture. It talks about our behaviours. It talks about the strategy. It talks about the big opportunity that we have. And it talks about our vision for success. What will success look like? So if you were to kind of overlay this onto a Hollywood film, it would be the same structure. You know, at the end, uh, Hero is transformed because, you know, he's been on this journey. He's had a really tough time, he or she, and then he resolves the challenge of the situation and he is a transformed person as a result. Mm. That is exactly what we're doing. We're just putting it into the context of a business. I love that. And it's, is it the... I the hero's, the hero's journey. journey. Yeah, I've yeah. I've seen it. Once you know it, no Disney film is the same because yeah. they do all follow that of arc. They you know, do. Moana gets on the boat; it almost sinks. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think to your point that how you break that out for a, a business organization is really interesting. And I, I assume implicit in what you say that story could be at a organizational level, but also at a project level or a team yeah, level. Is that definitely. those stories can have different levels? Well, the, the idea is that we take this overarching six chapter framework. Uh, which talks about the business story, but we then show leaders how to personalize it for their teams. So they don't change the story, but they do talk about what are the implications of this for our team? How are we going to respond to it? What's the call to action? And I should just go back to what makes a good story. Every good story needs a call to action. Otherwise, it just becomes an interesting fact sharing. So the call to action is a way of drawing the hero in, the employee in this case, drawing them in to say, you can make a difference. You can help us, you know, play your part in actually helping us to overcome this challenge. The other thing about a great story is that it people like to feel that they are part of something bigger than themselves. And I don't know if you've ever heard the NASA story Please. where... Well, it's a very famous anecdote that you hear a lot in business where John F. Kennedy went to NASA and he was walking around the uh, campus there and he came across a cleaner who was sweeping the floor. And uh, being the polite fellow he was, he, he said to the cleaner, well, what are you doing? And the cleaner, you would imagine, said, I'm sweeping the floor, can't you see? But he said, I'm helping put a man on the moon. The whole point of it was that it doesn't matter what little part you play, you're contributing to something that is bigger than yourselves. Mm. And I think a, a great business story where people can see the part they can play is incredibly compelling because they can see the role that they will play. And that's part of the task for leaders is to say, okay, this is 
my take on the story or, you know, these are the implications for my team, but open up the floor to, okay, how are you going to make a difference? And that is incredibly compelling. They won't feel done to. They're not victims of change then. They are involved in the change. They are uh, part of control as to, you know, what the outcome will be. So I think that there is a bit of neuroscience behind all of this to explain what goes on in our heads when, you know, when certain things are presented to us. And we've tried to make that six chapter narrative one that can be interpreted by different people in the same business, in different countries, different functions, different projects, different business units, that they all have the same story, but they all interpret it in a slightly different way. I'd be fascinated and this is a very big question, so you might say it's too big for what will be an hour's podcast, of actually how you do that in a way that keeps it impactful. Because you know, I think your film analogy is a good one, is there's always a concern in business that if you make things too broad, it becomes almost vague and yeah. actually doesn't have that impact. Yeah. I think your film an analogy is great because there's films that transcend yeah. know, geographies, cultures. Maybe this is something you do with the leadership tips, actually, how you do that for your stories. Because I think that's, you know, if I think about my change background, often you reach for PowerPoints and, and data because at some level you assume everyone understands that. And actually crafting a story that plays as well in the UK as it does in France or in Asia or in you know, mm. the US. And my last guest actually spent a lot of time out in Asia and was at pains to say Asia is not a place. There's countries yes. and different cultures. And to that point, actually how you balance that story. How do you get it so people get that meaning for them? And again, I appreciate I'm asking you what you probably spend days and months working with clients on, but I'm just fascinated. No, it's, well, I mean, this is my, this is what I love talking about. There are lots of different things that make it impactful. And most importantly, how do you make it sustainable? Because mm. once you've heard that story and we keep it quite high level, so it doesn't become out of date, you know, the next day, but it does need to have legs, you know, in a year's time, it still needs to be relevant to what's going on and people still need to take an interest in it. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, the way in which the story is written, you know, going back to the language we use, it, it can be incredibly cathartic for people to see, oh, okay, I get it. I, the penny drops. I understand now why we're doing what we're doing. I can see how it all fits together and I can see how this initiative I've been working on for the last four years, I can see why it's so important. So there's that. The second thing is we use small illustrative stories. We call them illustrative stories, human stories to illustrate some of the contents of the, the master narrative. And those are what, as human beings, we're really interested in. So we're far more interested in hearing about the struggles of one of our colleagues and what they did to overcome it and what a great outcome it was. As human beings, that's what we're drawn to. We're not drawn to abstract concepts and data. So if you can actually build a bank of small stories that illustrate these sort of statements, if you like, on, on the, the main narrative, you can keep refreshing it all the time because you just keep finding new stories all the time. I think the other thing that makes it very compelling is it's got to be an honest story. For people to believe in it, they need to feel that it's not just corporate whitewash. And it's not just talking about the what and the how, it's about, you know, in some cases we've had senior leadership teams that have actually put their hands up and admitted that they haven't always got it right. And it you can turn cynics around in five minutes when they hear that kind of stuff. It, it, it can be very compelling to hear the honesty of 
laying out what the challenge is and taking some kind of responsibility for it as leaders, because then it becomes more believable and then people are going to buy into it more. One of the other techniques we use is to, when we're drafting the narrative, we don't just interview the top team and then bang, out goes the narrative. We test it with different people in the organization. So they feel they've got a bit of ownership of it and they feel that they've co-authored it. And we do that either through focus groups or workshops. And you can actually get a remarkable insight from the organization, you know, as they are running through the story and going, oh, no, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like us. Or, oh, no, I don't think that's going to land. And it's really helpful for us when we're actually crafting it. And then we have to take it back to the executive team again and get their sign off. So it's quite a convoluted process in some respects, but it's the way to go because then it will land so much better. I think some some really interesting examples, and, and particularly for our listeners who who are largely in that change space, you know, some will work in the top strategic sort of top table, but for a lot of people who might be doing I don't know, a big IT program, I think those points, and particularly your point around those human stories and actually bring it to life, mm. because I just think about programs I've worked on, particularly where there is a big bang, you know, with IT largely, or there might be a reorganization. Very often it feels done to, not done with, and to your point, those stories where you can bring to life how much you know, someone's job was made easier so they could go and spend time with their kids or you know someone wasn't having to work weekends because the system now helped them but that authenticity from the individual not simply from a powerpoint i think it's a fascinating point i think so i one, one of the other ways in which we make it authentic is through the creative process and i haven't mentioned that so far but it is as important as the content is the creative way that we bring the story to life so yes, we use small stories, but we always give the this narrative a really powerful visual identity. And, you know, there's always a big idea behind it. What is this story really trying to say? And that visual identity can really become a kind of entire campaign, a creative campaign for clients. They can use those creative assets in all of their messaging, all of their communications. They can brand, you know, all sorts of processes internally with this creative suite of materials. And some clients have even gone as far as to apply it to their physical environment. So we had one big pharmaceutical company that actually etched some of the visuals into the glass of their meeting rooms. We've had others which have had the entire, the beautiful artwork that we've actually applied to the story. You can see it all over the office, wherever you go. So there are so many different ways to reinforce the story by making it omnipresent so people can see it, they can feel it, they can touch it. And it's a constant reminder that, you know, we are playing our part every single day that we go to work. We are playing our part in creating an organization that is resilient, that is relevant and is going to stay relevant and future-proofed for, you know, for the rest of its time on this planet. And that's really where we're going with all of this. It's about creating relevant organizations. I love the uh, physical environment analogy. And to your point, really, I guess, embodying that story through the, yeah. through where they work, through the processes. And it actually, this may answer the question I was going to ask you afterwards. So if it does stop me is, we've obviously talked about stories being powerful. And again, just from any you know, anyone listening we all know people who can tell a story well you know you all there's that person in the pub or your uncle or your aunt who tells a great story and we also know people who can't and i'd be fascinated 
again, for people who are sort of bought into this, want to try it, actually, how do you coach people to tell a good story? Because a good story in the wrong hands can become a bad one. And actually, likewise, a not interesting story in the right hands can become a fascinating one. So how do you coach people to tell that story in a way that makes it exciting, emotive, tells that Hollywood style? Yeah. So um, it's a very important part of the process is actually coaching people on how to communicate this story and in a way that is compelling. We give them a leadership, you know, leaders, a toolkit, for example. And we also use what influencers from different levels of the organization. And quite often they have toolkits too. And that toolkit will explain how to chapter by chapter, how to bring it to life for your team, how to make it personal and relevant to that team, how to tell your own personal leadership story. It's a really well tried and tested toolkit, I guess, that equips them with the skills and the knowledge and the confidence to be able to take what is quite a high level narrative and make it really meaningful for their team. And at the same time, we can create all sorts of creative assets to help them. We make our own films here at Storytellers. We can design events. We do the most incredible digital sort of, you know, assets to help those leaders to tell the story in a way that's going to be impactful, relevant, and really spark a conversation across their team about what are we going to do? What's the role we're going to play in this story? So there, again, there are very different ways of coaching them, but we can do it face-to-face coaching. We can give them toolkits. We quite, sometimes we can provide them with films as to how to do it. I mean, you know, the great thing about technology these days is that you can you know, you can create some wonderful materials. Uh, no, completely true. And I know, you know, prior to this, we we're talking about how things like podcasts, digital mediums, like video, suddenly you can yeah. infinitely, I guess, increase the amount of stories you can tell, the authenticity. Yeah. It's not simply, you know, someone at a town hall or a memo on a Word doc. You can bring yeah. that humanity to life. And, and it is horses for courses. I mean, we always say to the comms teams who are involved in this from a client side, you know, if, just get stories. Now they may come through little films that people like to make and you know it's a generational thing as well. But there are other people in a business that might prefer a newsletter or they might prefer, you know, the intranet or something like that. So I think, you know, you have to be able to look at how people are absorbing, how they are, you know, taking these stories in and what channels they are using for that and then use the same channels to actually push stuff out. And actually, it's a really good point that I actually think my question probably didn't help to answer, but you've taken me the right direction, which is it's not simply telling a story verbally. It is that consistency of message across the platform. So like you say, everywhere yeah. you turn, you you see that story. Yeah. So I think it's really powerful. And I think it's, you know, we absolutely are not a communications consultancy. I mean, this is about leadership as well. There's a lot of creative thinking that goes around the story, you know, to create this rallying cry and to extend the life of the story in lots of different creative ways. So I think there's that. But I I think that telling people the story isn't really what we're, what it's there for. You might share it once, but it's really all about the conversations that follow that keep linking back to the story, but really start to explore what are we going to do to contribute to it? So there may be sort of three or four, let's take, for example, our 
values or behaviours. You might have an entire discussion around values and behaviours, but it's part of the narrative. So it's not about constantly just telling the same story. It's about having really fruitful dialogue with your teams around aspects of the story and deep diving into them and starting to explore them and then coming back out again so people can understand why we're having that conversation because it's all part of the, the journey. And the other thing that helps is that, I mean, we've had clients where people have actually retracted their resignations having heard the story. Wow. It's that powerful. I mean, you may not want people to be retracting their resignations. You might think, actually, uh, we really need them to go. But it has that effect on people. It's a very powerful way of convincing people that actually this is a journey worth going on. You know, I want to be part of it. I think I mean, it's an incredible, powerful point there. And I, I almost, just because I think we could talk about the actual act of storytelling for the entire conversation. And mm. I almost want to bring us on to your sort of Hollywood analogy. I feel we've done the where we are now and mm. we're now sort of blurring to where we were at the start mm. and we'll go on the journey because I'd love to turn and hear your story of actually where the storytellers came from because I think particularly with something like what you do and storytelling, sitting here now in your office as a successful business, it's very easy to say, well, that makes sense. You know, Obviously, these large corporate organizations want to do it. But I imagine 19 years ago when it was you and your co-founders around the kitchen table and also 19 years ago, the world was very different. You know, the world wasn't quite, I'd say, as empathetic as it is today. I'd love to know, I guess, maybe we start with just the what and the why and then the how of where did the business come from? Gosh, it's, a, it's, it's quite, a, quite a story. So going way back before we sat around my kitchen table, Chris Spencer, who is our current chief executive here, he and I worked in the same business. It was Chris's business, which was a show production business. And after 9-11, the events industry really went into freefall. It was a terrible time. And we decided to reinvent ourselves. Again, we were still in show production. I'm talking about Marks and Spencer's fashion shows, corporates, okay. cor corporate shows. So we kind of needed to reinvent ourselves. We decided to kind of reinvent ourselves as storytellers because that's what we were doing. We were telling a story that was playing out on a stage in a conference or at the Festival of the Sea, for example, or the Queen's Jubilee, the Golden Jubilee, which we created three massive reenactments of the tri-services. So it was really big scale stuff. And we came across, you know, couple of people um, along the way who I introduced to Chris and I mean to cut a very long story short they were much more about strategic communications and so on and so we kind of formed this little posse and thought how can we use storytelling not just as a kind of an engagement tool to you know bring messages to life I think that's kind of that's too shallow how can we really help create meaning and purpose at every level of an organization with one consistent story. And it, it kind of evolved from there. You know, we developed a product. You can touch it. You can feel it. It's a beautiful piece of artwork. Um, Sorry. So, so just on that, because I'm, yeah, I'm in, I yeah. always find this early piece interesting. So you came together and yeah. said, we're going to do this. So the product, yeah. help me where that, where did that? So we wanted to make it tangible. The problem with storytelling is it's very intangible. And it's also seen by many as a bit pink and fluffy, a bit ethereal. You can't kind of touch it or feel it. So it's just kind of something we all recognize we do all the time. But, you know, what's that got to do with business? So we decided to create a proposition, which was, we're going to help you tell your story and create a piece of artwork around it. 
And then we're going to show your leaders how to then share it with their teams and turn it into action and then build momentum behind it because there are some principles of change going on in the background. So that's what we set out to do. But when we first started around my kitchen table, we didn't have a product. We didn't have any clients. And as you know, you can't get clients without a track record of clients. So somehow we had to kind of break through that barrier of we haven't got any clients, but we've got to convince someone this is worth doing. We didn't have an office. We didn't have any staff. We didn't have anything. We had a brilliant idea. And we just productized it. We packaged it. We made it tangible. We had the toolkit. You know, everything was branded with this wonderful creative visual identity. So it all kind of fitted together in like a compendium of things. I'm just trying to think who our very first client was. So I think it was probably either Boots. I know we worked with Yell, but, you know, these were early days when I, I guess I just went in and convinced them that they'd just discovered the best thing that they had ever come across and it was totally different to anything they'd done before. And I think a few kind souls gave us some money and said, okay, go off and do whatever it is you're doing. And that funded the development of the product. As part of that work with the first clients, you didn't sit at your kitchen table, build it, then take the product out. We, we had a kind of thought around a blueprint. The first story, because we call them story maps, this six chapter story. The first one we created was 11 chapters long. And it was just... I've shortened a bit. Oh, it was just, you know, so detailed. And I mean, you couldn't really make head or tail of anything. And then we shortened it. We refined it. We tested it. We found another client. We tested it again. I have to say, even today, it's followed pretty much the same principles that it did on day one. You know, we knew the hero's journey structure. We knew how to construct a great narrative and we just needed to work out a methodology of actually bringing it to life in business. Those were heady days and, you know, it was tough. It was tough persuading people to buy into an idea that we didn't really have any evidence of success at that stage. It's a different story now. <laughs> well, and, and I think to your point, you know, that's why I always find these early stages very interesting because to your point of stories persist, I think there's certain truisms that particularly in early stages of uh, businesses like yours and you know, having started mine, I, you know, the story isn't much different and actually those challenges aren't much different. Mm. And, I'd be really interested because there'll be others listening to this. And I, I speak to people all the time, mm. friends, you know, people in my business sort of associate network. And there's always a concern about starting something because, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I wasn't the expert at big consultancy X or big agency X, or it's a different shift for me. And I'd be fascinated because you mentioned that you and Chris came from that event space and yeah. a sort of common concern I hear people have of, well, I've got no track record in that industry and clients, you know, know me as the, you know, in your case, it'd be with the events people. So hang on, you now want us to know you as the storytelling strategy people. I'd love to know how you bridged that. And was it just sheer, you know, niceness and willpower and conversation and story? Did you do something that firmly positioned you differently? almost before that product. And if the product was what did that, you know, that's the answer. Mm. But how in those early days for those first clients, did you get them to see past, oh, you're the events people to what is, you are the story people? Because we, what we didn't do was just rebrand the events business. We, we closed that down and started again from scratch with a brand new proposition, with a brand new name, with a brand new team of people. So the kind of clients we went to, yes, the the kind people we knew and they were in our address book, they were good enough to give us a little bit of budget to go and do stuff with. And we told them, we were very honest with them and said, look, you know, we've got this amazing idea and let, let us try it out with you. But we didn't just kind of put a different jacket on 
and then suddenly tell our clients that we were something different. We, we actually create an entirely new business from scratch. And that was a very good idea. And also our, our audience was no longer events teams. Our audiences are CEOs and strategy directors and transformation directors and HR directors and communications directors. It's a different persona in the business that we go for now. And it's an entirely different kettle of fish. You made the point as well, and we've talked about, you know, the world is very different now. And I'd be really interested, you know, these kind people said, we'll give it a go. Actually, how has that sort of pitch and the client concerns, if you like, changed in the last 19 years? And, and particularly, again, now it's really obvious this is important, people buy into it. 19 years ago, the world wasn't like that. Was it simply they just they trusted you from a previous life and said, well, you know, we've got a bit of budget. Why don't we try it? What's the worst that happens? And if it wasn't that, almost, how did you convince them in a world where no one wants to be first and you were asking them to be first? It feels yeah. like quite a challenge. I'd love to know how you did it. Well, all of us, the team that we had at the time, and in fact, with the founders of the business are still in the business today. We all had experience of working with big business. We knew what we were talking about. We knew what the challenges were. We knew that there are always challenges trying to, you know, get a consistent story across multiple countries, multiple languages, multiple, you know, microcultures. We knew all of that. So we weren't trying to convince them of something that they felt we didn't know anything about. We, we went in and we went, look, we know what your problem is. And we listened. And, and that's the one thing I'd give your listeners. The one piece of advice is just listen. Be great listeners because you find out so much stuff and you can then use it to shape your business and your products, etc. So, yeah, it was a complete no brainer in some respects because a lot of our clients kind of intuitively knew that storytelling was what we all do. And we just had to kind of remind them of that and then show them how we were going to bring that skill, that human skill that we've all been doing for millions of years into a business world to solve a specific problem that we knew they had. And once they'd made the link and could see how it can absolutely solve it, then it was, you know, it wasn't nearly as difficult to persuade them. I think a really good piece of advice that listening and even today, I find it amazing how many clients comment when I'm having those sort of intro conversations around you know, the lack of talking that me or one of my team will do versus them, because I think you're right, particularly when people have a product or a, you know, an offering, it can become very easy to lead with that before you've heard the other person's concerns. And to your point with stories, actually, the story you tell someone might be very different, although completely true. If you know they have different touch points, oh, just for, you know, it's the film analogy, we all like different films. And unless yeah. you know what your taste is, I can't recommend a film. Yeah. I've done a lot of sales training in the past. And one of the number one, absolute number one points to make is let the client go first. Let them tell you what they want to tell you. And don't go diving in with, oh, I'm, I'm from the storytellers. Let me show you what we do. Because how you then describe what you do, you can't shape it around anything. You can't wrap it around a client's challenge. You've got to sit and listen to them as long as you possibly can before you start explaining what it is that you do and how you can support them. So I think listening is a massive skill. In communications, listening is as important as telling and talking. And in fact, leadership today, you know, high-performing leaders are leaders who listen and encourage 
dialogue and conversation, not just, I'm going to tell you what to do, go away and do it. That's gone. That's not a thing anymore. Well, in some cases it is, and you can look at the company and think, yeah, we know why. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great point. It talks to what you mentioned earlier in your process of actually replaying the the messages from the leadership to the team and then taking them back to the leadership of that listening. You're listening to what your team say and, and you know, turning the story based on that. And I only because you mentioned it earlier, and, and it's an obvious question, and again, I... I think you know, in what we do, we have left and right brain and in consulting and you know, the analytical type of work, there can be a lot of, I guess, cynicism around this sort of thing. You, you highlighted it. You know, I'm sure you've had some clients oh, yeah. who, who say that. And, and almost to your example, what do you say when you're listening and a CEO, let's say, or a transformation director, whoever it is, says, you know, Alison, this all just sounds, I think you said pink fluffy stuff. Like, yeah. why would I do this? I'd love well, to know what your answer is. It, well, I had this quite recently with a very large software firm and the CEO said to me, as he introduced himself, I don't do fluffy and I don't do trite. So if you're going to give me any of that, I'm not interested. That was his opening gambit. So I said, well, luckily we don't either. <laughs> and, you know, we talked them through and, and you know, he, to be fair to him, he absolutely did take on board because, you know, there was a burning platform there and he plunged in with both feet and he was very sceptical right up until the moment when we launched the story to the next tier of leaders. And the feedback he got was phenomenal because those leaders had never seen that style of leadership where they were being open, transparent. They were talking about their emotions. They were talking about, you know, how it made them feel rather than what they were observing. You know, this is all part of the telling of the story. And it just landed fantastically well. And, you know, we do measure it with, you know, feedback surveys and so on. And they said, this is the kind of communication we want. This is the kind of leadership we want. So, of course, there are people who are cynical about it. And the number of times I've been into a business where they've said, what, are you a bunch of actors or what? But when they see the story, and we've shown lots of examples to them, they are blown away because they say, this is what we need. We need something simple. We need something clear. We need something that spells out the reality, but gives people hope and something they can believe in the future. And when you see it, you think, can't believe we weren't doing this before. And a lot of clients come back to us year after year after year because it's just landed so well with their people. Meanwhile, they need to continue doing the PowerPoint presentations, the town halls, the communications and, and to backfill it. But it's a very effective technique. Gosh, I, well, well done in that meeting. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I've had similar given what we do, but I can imagine that is quite an opening gamut. Well, do, to you, get, know, do you know something? I've, I'm pretty resilient and I've been into literally thousands of companies now and I've met all sorts of different people and had all sorts of different reactions. I've had people cry with emotion. I've had people who are just thoroughly obnoxious. I have this imaginary Viking helmet that I put on when people say things like that to me. And I think, right, I'm going to prove them wrong now. And I quite often do. <laughs> I, I think that's a great position to start with. And I think turning, and I'm going to try, I probably condense unfairly 19 years into one question so yep. so draw it out as you want but to the hero's journey and I'm picturing it in my head I just can't remember each of the actual names for the steps but you've got you start on your quest which we've talked about we talked about the end in between in all good stories anyone listening will have watched this in a Hollywood film there is yeah, I, I don't think it's called the moment of despair but there's that time when you know something's gone really wrong and you have to decide do we keep going or do we not and then obviously out the other side you have the learning and the journey you go on. Mm. And 
for anyone listening who's building their own firm, you know, you've grown over those 19 years very well. I'm sure there's been challenging oh, times. Yes. Yeah. I'd love to dig into just some of those key you know, inflection points, those, mm. uh, as I say, those pits of despair and how you were able to come out of them and the learnings from it. Gosh, I'm really happy to talk about the pits of despair because it wouldn't be real. I mean, I've been telling you about this wonderful success story and actually there were moments of really difficult times. One of them was at the very beginning when we didn't have any clients and we thought, how are we going to get clients? And, you know, we all have mortgages to pay and we didn't have any money. We couldn't pay ourselves because we weren't making any money. And we'd started this new company. There was nothing to, you know, no cushion there at all. That was tough. The other thing I think is that all four of us here now, we're all very different. So that's what makes it work. But you need to be constantly making sure that you are aligned behind where you're going, why you're going there, what your plan is, as owners of a business, what your plan is, and make sure that you're on the same page. And there have been moments where we haven't been on the same page. And that creates a tough time. When in 2008, the financial, the crash, we had a lot of financial service organizations. We were working with Halifax at the time and with what was HBOS, and we suddenly had to pivot and suddenly change their story because they were acquired by Lloyd's, so they're now Lloyd's Banking Group. That was tough because in a recession, you know, no one wants to spend money on anything they feel they don't really have to. So we had to make a very convincing argument. Brexit, not when Brexit happened, but when they announced there was going to be a referendum, the market went on a massive wobble. And of course, any market wobble creates uncertainty and that impacts on people's desire to spend. So yes, there have been some enormously tough times. We've had, we've made bad hires. We've lost some brilliant people because our culture wasn't where it should have been. But these are all learnings that you need as a business owner. And to not be complacent, you need to go through failings. You need to find out what works, what doesn't work, as long as you learn from it. And then you can actually make sure that it doesn't happen again. So now the four of us, we are completely aligned. We've worked hard together to absolutely, you know, be on the same page. We all want the same thing. We've worked incredibly hard on our culture. And I think you've experienced a little bit of it when you came here today. I hope so. It's an incredibly supportive, very kind, caring culture that we have. So there are lots of things that we've done I mean, you know, our, our job is to create resilient organizations, but we need resilience ourselves. So we've worked very hard and our values are really important to us as well. And, you know, we've worked very hard to make sure we live those values. And, and that helps us enormously to be the company we are. I think some great examples there. And I, just to maybe start with one, and just because I'm intrigued again for other listeners. So to help place for yourself, one of my former guests, Joe Amani is he's one of i think the only i think one of two professors of management consulting in the uk and so he does a lot of research on this yeah. and he he did research for a book and one of the things he interviewed people about was why firms failed as well as succeeded yeah. and actually the thing that led to the most failures was co-founder misalignment at some point on the journey you know they went in together and it just at some point that stopped working and it's very hard for a firm that breaks in two to to continue or three or four i should say i'd love to know because there'll be others who are launching or growing businesses where they have two, three, four co-founders. Mm. Actually, in those moments where you found yourselves on the same page, how did you identify it and rectify it in a way that made you stronger as a team? Because those are those 
inflection points that can be quite dangerous. Yeah, I think we all believed so much in this storytelling product that we offer. It was too good an idea for us to allow ourselves to fail. We talked, we, you know, got through it. There were people who had to leave the business because they weren't helping. And I think that's one thing is to make sure you are on the same page and you've got to keep talking to each other and listening to each other and make sure you keep revisiting because one year you might all be on the same page and the next year someone's circumstances might have changed and you're no longer on the same page. And I think the other thing that we recognized, and it was one of the hardest things I think for some of us is that you can't always be in the same leadership position. It's not actually very healthy for the founders to be in the leadership positions the whole time. I mean, it's for example, on the executive team, because founder syndrome is very dangerous when you kind of say, well, we're going to just talk to you all and we're going to listen to you. And then founder comes in and there are no consequences for them because they own the business. So you're not going to fire yourself. And you say, well, I've, I'm going to make my own decision about this. And you kind of just impose your view on the business. I mean, it's soul destroying for people who are working really hard. And then the founder comes along and says, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to do it my way. And there's very little they can really do. So we've worked very hard recently or in the last few years not to have founder syndrome. And the structure that we have here means that Marcus, two of us, Marcus and myself, are, are not on the senior leadership team. Deliberately, we've taken a step back because we have a plan. And, you know, if, for example, we ever exited this business or if somebody bought the business, they don't want to be too dependent on the founders. So you have to make these brave decisions to hand over your baby to other people, even if you're still working in the business. I'm really cool with it. It's fine. But I'm going to, sorry, just jump into ask yeah. how you did that, because particularly in our, you know, in our industry, it's quite common for the founder to, to lead the whole way or the founders yeah. to lead the whole yeah. way. And how did you get yourself comfortable with exactly that handing your baby over and yeah, taking instruction direction from someone who isn't a founder, if you like. How did you get yourself well, there? Well, for, for many years, the, so there's, there are four of us, one of whom is our chairman, Martin. We met him downstairs. And you met Very him nice. downstairs. He's great. And then there are three of us. And for many years, because we couldn't make a decision about this, we all co-ran the business. And of course, that's hopeless. You can't rule, you know, or sort of run a business by committee. And effectively, it was a committee of three. So a few years ago, we decided that, you know, if we were going to be serious about this, we needed to have a chief executive and the best person to be our chief executive who wasn't necessarily that client face because I'm involved with clients every day. And so was Marcus was to make Chris our CEO. So we, we elevated one of the four of us to CEO. And that meant that Chris was empowered to create a structure. Now, we're still on the board, Marcus and myself, and of course, Martin, who's our chairman. But it meant that we, you know, we couldn't just come in and say, no, I'm it's time to do it my way. We had a proper structure. And, you know, we talked about it. We made sure that we were all comfortable with it. And we knew what the implications were for, e for each other. And we've got a very exciting future ahead of us. So we effectively are doing what we, as individuals, what we do best in the business. And that's not necessarily a good idea to fill up your diary time with 
stuff that isn't what you do best in the business. So that's how we did it. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but I think we're all very comfortable with it now. I can imagine, like you say, the, the journey you've been on probably had a lot of conversations and you know, things to think about. And you know, it's great to hear that actually that's worked for you as well, because I imagine for a lot of people, it's that fear of the unknown and you know, where that story leads to when you set off on that epic quest that actually is what prevents that. But it's great to hear that for yourselves, it, it's really worked. And just another one you mentioned, and I, I'm kind of jumping the big headline ones around Brexit and the sort of financial crash. If I'm doing that wrongly, Alison, stop me. But, I haven't mentioned COVID. Well, yeah, yeah, well, and actually, well, I hadn't even thought of COVID, but maybe it, maybe COVID links to the question I was going to okay. ask because you mentioned around culture and actually you had to select for your organisation, but you mentioned around earlier story stopped someone resigning. Actually, I'd be fascinated how that story helps you to drive the culture and let people self-select about whether they fit the organisation or not. The sort of follow on is then, and how does that all work in COVID? But I was going to ask question yeah. one. You've hit me with an interesting question yeah. too. So maybe okay. take them in whichever order is best. Uh, so I, I think with the, uh, the story, self-selection is interesting. There have been clients, for example, where people have seen or heard the story or even been part of its development who've actually decided, no, this is not for me. And they've left. That is a good thing. Because if you're not aligned to that story and you're not, on board with it and want to deliver it, then you're going to be a resistant terrorist, perhaps. And that's no good for any organization, particularly in leadership positions. Now, the storytellers, we do our, to ourselves what we do with our clients. We have our own story and we take the business through exactly the same process that we go through with our clients. We're just updating our current story right now. There will be focus groups. There will be alignment sessions. But I think it's a, it's a good way of helping people to understand whether or not they are a fit with this. And as I said, you know, there have been people who have decided that it's not a journey they want to go on, that they're not aligned to it and that they have left as a result. So I think it, it kind of is very good from sourcing the wheat from the chaff. What you don't want necessarily is people who shouldn't belong in the organization to think, this is a journey I really want to go on. <laughs> that sparks an entirely different conversation. And that then I think takes us nicely onto, and I, they may link, they may not, so I'll let you take it, is that COVID point, because it hadn't come to mind, which may sound very odd given the world we've all just lived through, but you talked earlier around how part of that story is you know, physical environments, one piece, talking to your colleagues, seeing it on the intranet. There is a sense of almost being in that environment. You know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, I've not been, but if you've been to one of the secret cinemas they run in London, where you have the film and then they immerse you in it and you feel like you're part of the film. Yeah. That, I guess, is what I'm thinking of when you talk about sort of how people bring that to life. And I'd be fascinated, almost not so much for the world we've just come from, but we're still in what you'd call a hybrid world. People aren't back in their offices five days a week. There's a lot more homeworking. Actually, how do you bring a story to life in that world where actually I'm in my own environment with my own story, how do you make that narrative real for those people? Well, it's really interesting because when the pandemic first hit, we were planning a conference for a big client, Phoenix Group. And we, in three weeks, we had to kind of turn it into a virtual event. And we've actually been doing virtual events for a long time, but we've actually developed our own proprietary green screen technology now, which just makes it 
really compelling. I mean, it's, you know, the audience has a front seat. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in your sitting room at home, you feel like you're there. It's wonderful. And and also because there are lots of businesses going through digital transformation right now. And to do something digital is actually quite symbolic. It's a very good way of getting that message across to people that the world is now digital. We're going to do things digitally. It can save an enormous amount on the carbon footprint, saves time, saves energy, saves money. You're not having to hire great big conferences. I think the story itself can do a lot to help people feel connected. They may be working from home a few days a week, but actually they're still very much part of the narrative that is being told. So I think, you know, funnily enough, we've just had our best year ever, a phenomenal growth. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And I think it's because when we started 19 years ago, we were way ahead of our time. Now we're really needed. We're needed more than ever because people are working from home and from offices more disparate because of the great resignation where, you know, you need to attract and retain the best talent. So you need a story that elevates your employee value proposition, your purpose, your values, your culture. All of this has got to come to the fore now in order to keep hold of the good people that you've got. So I think that the need for a story is even greater in these turbulent times. And because businesses are going through incredibly rapid change, I think change is always been around, but this is happening now at a speed of light. And you need to have people anchored with a good story about why we're doing this. You've actually reminded me of something I, I had in my, my sort of mental uh, list to ask from something you said earlier, because it's a fascinating point, actually. You mentioned your storytelling approach hasn't fundamentally six steps, has six chapters, hasn't changed a lot in the 19 no. years. Actually, what you just said there, and, and the answer might just be it's still the same, but yeah, we live in a world where people will grab TikTok and yeah. you know, everyone's doing minute videos. Yeah. You know, we we talked before about this podcast an hour yeah. to two, and everyone says, "Why is it not 10? You know, we all hear those stories of everything's getting quicker now. How have you maintained that approach, and how, if at all, has it changed in a world where some would say no one wants to listen to six chapters, Alison? It has to be one. How how have you made that work for today's world? Because. We are still human beings and we still need the same stories that we needed a million years ago and we will need in a million years' time if we're still here. You know, there is, it is the way that the human being is designed is to, you know, we're intelligent social beings. So this is something that people crave and they always have craved. We've just helped them in business understand that you can crave it in business as well. And, you know, it's been very successful. So yes, everything's happening speedily now. You know, there are lots more channels. As you say, there's TikTok, there's social media, there's all sorts of different platforms. We're being bombarded with information. But that to me just says even more need for an honest, simple, clear story that cuts through the clutter and helps people make sense of everything that's going on around them. So I think we, we, we live and work in a world where technology is just happening, AI, everything's happening so fast. There are so many different channels. There are so many different platforms we can use. But at the end of the day, as Alan Kay from Walt Disney said, we're all just cavemen with briefcases, hungry for somebody to tell us stories. And that's what we are. I love that answer. <laughs> and I, I think to you, you made a actually quite a pertinent point there as well around 
we're bombarded with information and actually a lot of what we are bombarded with, you know, you do flick through social media, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever social work, it's facts, it's figures, it's, you know, so-and-so's done this, five things for that. It's not like you said, there's no narrative to it. And actually hearing you talk, it sounds obvious of that actually makes you crave stories more because there's no coherence to, yeah. you know, a post about yoga and then a yeah. post about food. It doesn't Perhaps have that. It's all linked together. Yes. And I think that brings me quite nicely to a sort of a question that bridges where we started with where we are now and that journey of actually, I'd be fascinated what it is that has motivated you over those last 19 years and, and almost what's kept you in the business. Because you mentioned there around at some point there might be a transition and you know, you're open to that, but 19 years is quite a long time. And I say that not as a judgment on, on you or your team, but when I think of guests I've interviewed for this show, there's a lot of people who set out to launch a business and they'll get two, five, 10 years in. And by that point, they have a large business. There's some value attached to it. Someone will talk to them and say, well, you know, can we partner? Can we merge? Can we buy you? I have met less people who have been on that lifetime journey, if you like. And I'd love to know almost what's kept you on that. And, and you know, you can hear the passion in your voice. Why are you so as passionate now as you were you know, 19 years ago? Because I think we've only just touched the tip of the iceberg it's taken us a while and you know we have been approached by companies that wanted to buy us and we've turned them down because we're not ready yet because there's so much more to do I think that it's been relatively recently that we've structured ourselves in a sensible way where we've started to hire talent that is really experienced in the kind of areas that we need them to be experienced as leaders so, you know, people who are on our executive team, we've just hired a chief creative officer who is a very well-known person in his field. He comes from the advertising world. So I think we're kind of just getting our act together. We've funded ourselves all the way through this. We've never got external funding. And I think that's possibly why it's taken a little while. And also because we've been enjoying it so much. I mean, I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to have clients who absolutely love what we do. And, you know, I do a lot of business development and there's nothing I love more than showing a new client for the first time what the possibilities are and watching them thinking, oh my goodness, we need this so badly. And it's just almost addictive. So you know, we're all very passionate about it. We all think there's a huge amount of potential. There's lots more we can do to achieve what we want to achieve. And we're just not ready to give it up yet. <laughs> Fantastic. I think, you know, brilliant to hear. And you know, to your point, the stories are just as needed now as they were 19 years ago, a million as we talked about. And actually to your earlier point around hiring a leadership team, you know, bringing in that chief creative officer shows that and is a big step in that journey. So I think it's brilliant to hear. Well, I think we're a very creative um, bunch of people here. And one of the things that we've moved towards is not just about creating a solution for change per se, but it's about creating what we call story-driven organizations where an entire organization, everything that they do, and I mentioned this at the beginning, is aligning and leveraging the content of that narrative so that it ceases just to be a paracetamol and it's actually the vitamin as well, that you're actually sort of creating extraordinary organisations with extraordinary people whose potential has been unleashed, who really feel valued, they feel they own it and they're really excited about the um, ambition of their, their company. 
And I think that's our next task is how to create story-driven organizations and the value that that actually adds to an organization's worth. So I, I think there's a lot more work to do and that's where we're going at the moment. Amazing. Well, I think, Alison, in terms of today's movie, that feels like we've finished <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be a sequel at some point. But I have just some last questions I like to ask every guest. And the first one I'll, I'll introduce as stories as in books, but please don't think this has to be fiction books, although it can be. And and I'm just fascinated and I can see a few on the table here, but they, they might not be yours. But I just love to know what is the book or books, you know, over that time you've been building the business, you find yourself either referring back to or, or giving to others, giving to your clients most often? Yeah, oh, there are so many. I couldn't list them all. Personally, I think here at The Storytellers, we always give new people in the business the, the book Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, which is the all about the conflicts of the rational and the emotional mind and how to align the two, because this is all about emotional connection. We're trying to create a more emotional connection. And we often use the analogy of what we call the elephant and the rider. The elephant represents the emotional mind and the rider presents the rational. Now, in a situation where our emotions are governing our decisions, who do you think is going to win, the elephant or the rider? It will be the elephant every time. So it's about this conflict of rational and emotional and, you know, our rational decision-making is governed actually more by our emotions. So Switch is a very good book to read to understand that. There are a couple on storytelling, one called The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr, uh, S-T-O-R-R, and one that I've personally got a lot from is The Power of the Tale, which is by Julie Allen, Gerald uh, Fetloff, I think it's how you pronounce it, and Barbara Heinzen. And those three have been, you know, quite helpful from a business point of view it's provided the kind of science behind what we do which is very important i love all three and the three i've never had before on the show and i always particularly now we're 100 episodes in i, I always love to get a new recommendation for for me for my listeners so those particularly for anyone listening who wants to find out more about storytelling i think some great recommendations yeah there are lots of others and if any of your listeners want to get in touch then i would be really happy to make some other recommendations as well if they are interested in this amazing answer. well i will come back to that yep. in a moment because there's just one question before i ask how people can do that which yeah. is we've covered a lot of ground today we've talked about you know your relationship building skills the importance of listening importance of stories and this question might be a recap it might be a chance to share something new but it's very much focused on almost career advice for listeners and mm. to paint the picture to set the scene of the story there's three people in front of you one is just starting their career. They may be 21, 22, just out of university or just in their first job. There'll be someone else who I know is a sort of manager grade, but that's someone in their sort of mid-late 20s. They've done enough to have options. They've got experience, but they aren't at the kind of senior leadership end of an organization. And then the third, I guess, is someone like when you started the business. You know, They're on the cusp of becoming a, you know, one of the people you work with in, in your clients. They're becoming a senior leader, launching their own business. They're at that I guess, important inflection point of the thing I do is going to be the thing I do for the next 10 or 20 years. Is that what I want to do? And I'd love to get your advice for each of them. Oh, well, some of them I would give the same piece of advice to absolutely every one of them. And, and that is going back to the word listen. If you have an idea or if you've you know been developing an idea and it's now maybe quite a mature idea, you constantly need to listen to your customers, to understand what they're looking for 
you know, you can come up with a great idea and we've been guilty of this in the past by saying, we think this is a really good idea because we really like it. Well, maybe we really like it, but maybe our customers don't find a need for it and don't really want to pay for it. So I think listening to your customers, listening to the people around you who you are involving in your idea, they may be employees, they may be, I don't know, you know, stakeholders in your business, but listen to them, listen to what their views are. You know, you may be the owner of the business or the owner of the idea, but you need people around you. You alone are not going to be the only person who makes this a success. You are going to need to rely on a team of people usually, or people around you who are going to, you know, make it a success, including your customers. So I'd say that listening to make sure that you you get it right and that you don't just drift off onto a self-indulgent journey, what you think is a good idea. You know, I think there's a balance there. I think to the person who's just starting out on a business, be prepared to fail, <laughs> take the knocks, learn from them and don't do it again. I think that's tenacity. You just got to keep going. If you believe in something enough and you really can see its benefits, keep going. Surround yourself with people who can help you with that. And from a sales point of view and whatever your product service is, sell the benefits of it. Clients want to hear benefits and outcomes. They don't want to hear about product features. And it's very easy to just put something on the table and say, well, look, it's great. It's got a kind of pink button here and, and then it's got a red thing there. And this is, if you press it, it does this. Not the point, it's what benefit is attached to that? What's the value of it for a customer? Because that is how you will get ahead. So that's what I'd say to the person starting out. I think for somebody who's sort of developing, keep innovating. And I go back, listen to your customers, keep innovating. Don't be just happy just to have an idea and think that's going to be the best idea forever and ever. The world's changing around you. So you need to constantly think of new, different ways of presenting your product or service and make sure that it's in tune with what your customers actually want. You know, stay ahead of the curve, in other words. Uh, don't be complacent. I mean, there's lots more I could offer those people because we've gone through it ourselves. I think for entrepreneurs and people who are starting up a business, don't always think that you've got to be in the driving seat. We did that for many years where the three of us were in the driving seat and it is not healthy. It's healthy to look at people who may be better than yourselves, people who've got experience that you don't have to get them in to help drive your business forward. You'll have a stake in the business, so you'll benefit from it ultimately, but don't feel that you've got to be the chief cook and bottle washer and take control of everything because that is really important. And that's a lesson that we've learned. And when we changed and stopped doing that, everything started to fire on all full cylinders. So I can tell you that's the way it goes. And I think for people who are, you know, establishing and putting their roots down, have a plan and have a plan that your colleagues or maybe your fellow stakeholders are on the same page with. We talked about this earlier. Make sure that you are constantly aligning with each other about what success will look like. When do you want to exit? Do you want to exit? Do you want to sell? Make sure that you're all on the same page because the minute you become misaligned is the minute that things can start to go a little bit pear-shaped and a whole lot more, but just for a start of 10. I think there's a lot in there. And Alison, thank you, because like you say, I'm sure there's a lot more you could share and a lot more you have as well over the course of this conversation. So 
thank you so much for today, for making the time, for sharing your journey, for sharing your story, I should say. And the last question, you mentioned it a moment ago. For anyone who wants to find out more about yourself or storytellers or get in touch about books, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Well, I'm very happy for anyone to contact me either through our website, thestorytellers.com, uh, or directly my email address is alison, A-L-I-S-O-N dot S-E, which is spelled E-S-S-E, at thestorytellers.com and you know very happy to have a conversation or meet for coffee or whatever amazing well thank you we'll put those in the show notes as well and i'm sure you'll get some people reaching out to find out more so thank, thank you. you very much thank you it's been a delight i'm really thank pleased you. and uh, all that's left is all the best for the rest of your week thank you very much indeed Cheers. thanks 